0: some much-needed clarity for aircraft management companies and owners regarding their federal excise tax obligations and a key advocacy win for our industry. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for business aviation news. In this time when good news sometimes seems hard to come by, it's definitely worth cheering when business aviation scores a victory. A years-long advocacy campaign by NBAA and its partners culminated recently with a final rule from the Internal Revenue Service that clarifies applicability of federal excise taxes on management companies and aircraft owners and prevents the improper and retroactive application of FET charges. To tell us more about this effort, I'm pleased to welcome Scott O'Brien, who is NBAA Senior Director of Government Affairs, along with attorney John Hoover, partner at the law firm of Holland & Knight and the chair of the NBAA Tax Committee. Now, Scott, it's not often we hear good news and taxes in the same story. Please tell us a bit about how we came to this recent IRS final
1: rule. So this dates back quite a number of years, and it started when the IRS, um, without really a full understanding of business aviation and how aircraft management arrangements are typically structured, came out with what's called a chief counsel advice memorandum, which is basically a a memo from the IRS attorneys to the auditors in the field. And the, the challenge with the memo is that it really inaccurately presented how aircraft management works. And In short, had the effect of applying a 7.5% tax to pretty much all amounts that aircraft owners pay to the management provider. And while a 7.5% tax might not seem like a lot, the, the big issue here is that if you're familiar with aircraft management a significant amount of money kind of is a pass through to the aircraft management provider where the owner you know with the owner's direction the management company is performing maintenance hiring pilots doing all kinds of things like that and business aircraft are of course costly to operate so if you apply all those costs of operating an aircraft and owning an aircraft with a seven and a half percent tax it gets quite costly and the big frustration and and challenge for our industry was that the 7.5% tax, it really should be applied to commercial air transportation. So it's the tax you pay when you buy an airline ticket or charter an aircraft. However, if you're using your own airplane, you've just elected to hire a management company to assist you in, in owning the aircraft, there's really no reason that the government should be treating it as it's like it's a commercial flight. It just, you know, even if you're not familiar with aviation, it it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to treat a flight on someone's own aircraft as if they had purchased a a ticket on an airline or performed a Part 135 charter flight. So that's the background. And, And the effect it had on these management companies was that the IRS had really never provided clear guidance that this tax was due or going to be collected. So this memo came out. The IRS then started performing audits in the field that often went back a number of years. And they came to these management companies with six, seven-figure tax assessments when the management company had no idea that they were even responsible for this tax. So again, this kind of goes to their unfamiliarity with our industry in that Management companies, they're oftentimes small businesses. They don't own the airplanes and they don't have the financial ability to be paying six figure tax assessments. And many times, if it's three plus years ago, they may not even manage that aircraft anymore. It could have been sold. So they were really left in the lurch and um, you know, came to NBAA and needed us to take action. And through this many year process, we worked with the IRS and the treasury department Then we finally went to Capitol Hill, where we secured in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a provision that finally Congress spoke and made clear that if you're flying on your own aircraft and having the assistance of a management company, there's no commercial transportation tax. It's treated just like any non-commercial Part 91 flight and the non-commercial fuel tax applies. So Congress definitively spoke. As we all know, it's very challenging, especially in this environment, to get things through Congress. And and the way we did that was really bringing together a broad industry coalition. It it took a while. It involved a lot of meetings. We had um, some some really important champions on Capitol Hill. Pat Tiberia, a member of Congress from Ohio, who has since um, retired, really led the charge along with Senator Brown and Portman also from Ohio. And The Ohio connection is, of course, NetJets and executive jet management are are some of the largest players in this industry and we're we're quite involved as well. So we we got the legislation done. Then the next step was to work with the government on the final regulations. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And that, again, was a coalition effort with um, the National Air Transportation Association and others. To get the final regulations to a place that that works for the industry, that is reflective of how these arrangements are structured and importantly provides a standard that's clear to taxpayers and the government.
0: John, please walk us through the FAT
2: exemptions contained in this rule. 4261 E5 says that if the owner of the aircraft or a lessee of the aircraft pays for aircraft management services or flights on the aircraft, then the exception applies. So if I own an aircraft and I hire Scott to manage it, if I pay Scott to manage the aircraft, those payments are not gonna be treated as subject to federal excise tax. They fall within this management services exception. Well, one concern that we had was owner trusts involve the trustee having legal ownership of the aircraft. And then they have a document that hands control of the plane over to the beneficial owner. But it doesn't really provide for fair market lease payments, and it's not really set up like an ordinary lease. And we were concerned that there might be this cloud floating around the structure that people wouldn't really know whether they're beneficial ownership was going to be treated as being the owner or lessee of the aircraft so as to make them eligible for this exception. And we explained that concern to the IRS and they agreed that this should not be something that's left open. So in the final regs, they made it clear that owner trusts are not a problem, that beneficial owners of aircraft under these owner trusts are eligible for the exception. And this has been a years-long process, right, John? We really started into it in 2008. The IRS had issued an audit technique guide that the tax committee didn't like on this issue. And we had a series of meetings with the IRS over several years. And we thought we were making progress through about 2011. And then the IRS kind of went silent on us and they issued the chief counsel advice in the spring of 2012. That's when we started having more focused meetings with IRS chief counsel. And they brought in another attorney at chief counsel and we had meetings with him. And that went on for several years. It's a little odd to say we accomplished something, but I think we did accomplish something in at least bottling up the process from a regulatory perspective. And in 2017, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the the statute was put in place. And so at this point, we're just commenting on the statute. But we got statutory relief after almost 10 years of wrangling with the regulators over the issue.
0: More in just a moment. But first, a word from NBAA.
1: NBAA Flight Plan listeners, you get your weekly news here. Are you getting the latest daily headlines? The NBAA Insider Daily News Service puts the news you need in your hands every weekday morning, free of charge. Don't miss out. Subscribe today at NBAA.org daily.
0: We're back now with John Hoover and Scott O'Brien and our discussion of new IRS regulations affecting federal excise tax obligations for aircraft owners and management companies. Scott, from what John described, it sounds like even with many of these exemptions already codified in the 2017 legislation, this final rule may have been very different had it not been for work by NBAA and NATA.
1: Yeah, so once Congress passed the law on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we had numerous meetings with the IRS and Treasury Department to work through you know, how they would implement that law, because while the law was fairly specific, there was additional guidance that was needed and John and the tax committee were, were really deeply involved in that. So um, we, we commented on a number of areas that had NBAA not stepped up, we would have had a final rule that would have caused additional confusion and kind of consternation in the industry, which of course wasn't our goal here. So, I mean, the, the owner trust, I think, is a is a great example of sort of a, a new issue that we thought to raise during the process. I think one of the really fundamental issues that we knew about going into the rulemaking was how structures where there's a a lease of the aircraft are treated. And, you know, John can go into this in more detail, but it's very common in this industry that an aircraft is owned in a special purpose entity and through what's called an ownership backup through a dry lease, the the control of the aircraft is transferred to the actual operating company or or the individual that's operating the aircraft. So there's a question as to if the lessee is making payments for management services Are they viewed as the owner for the purposes of this exception? Because kind of the the key thing here is that the management services payments have to be coming from the aircraft owner to the management company for flights on the owner aircraft. So the natural question is, well, let's say I'm a lessee of the aircraft, you know, am I deemed the owner and do my payments count towards being covered by the exemption? So while that seems clear, there's um, a part of the statute that talked about disqualified leases. And when the proposed rule came out, it struck us that the IRS was trying to expand this definition of what was a disqualified lease to a broader set of leases that we really were concerned about. So we spent a lot of time in our comments trying to explain to the IRS the importance of adhering to what Congress had said is a disqualified lease and and sticking to that. And in the final rule, they basically did that, which I think is a a significant victory because had the definition of what a disqualified lease had been expanded to throw in all kinds of legitimate leasing that happens in our industry, the the effect would have been that a lot of lessees, when they made managed services payments, they, they would not have been sure if those payments were covered by the exception.
0: John, can you delve into some more details of the disqualified lease rule that Scott mentioned?
2: The statute has an exception. The statute is an exception and there's an exception to the exception. And under that exception to the exception, you don't get the benefit of the protection from FET in the case of a disqualified lease. And a disqualified lease is a lease from the management company that has a term of less than 31 days. So the thought was that if a management company owns an aircraft and a customer comes to it and says, I'd like to lease the aircraft for a week and I'd like to hire your management services. Well, the management company providing the aircraft lease and the management services together, that really adds up to air transportation service and that should be subject to federal excise tax. And nobody would really quarrel with that. Normally, what we're talking about is an owner of the aircraft who hires only management services from the management company, that that our owner is not getting the plane from the management company. So we don't really have a quarrel with the basic rule. The problem came up that when they wrote the proposed regulations, the IRS decided to get greedy, and they said, well, we need an anti-abuse rule if there are leases for more than 31 days, and they're non-exclusive leases, then we're going to say that the exception does not apply. And they left out the condition that the lease be from the management company, so they just said any non-exclusive lease basically is subject to the threat of this anti-abuse rule. and you know, they were going beyond the statute because they were looking at leases of more than 31 days and the statute, you know, only treats leases of less than 31 days as disqualified leases. So we basically called foul on that so that's just out of bounds you, sh- you shouldn't be raising some anti-abuse rule for a situation that a is not abusive and b is completely outside the scope of the disqualified lease definition and they agreed they just scrapped that anti-abuse rule so i, I think we did some good on that
0: so with this rule now entered into law scott what comes next
1: so the tax committee under john's leadership is going to be working on more detailed resources, including an article, and we'll cover it in our virtual tax seminars we do. So, this is just really the beginning of, of trying to get this information out to the industry. I think it might also be helpful to say that when people are reading through the final rule, they may note that the IRS did initially think about looking at who uh, is responsible for collecting and remitting excise tax when a charter broker is involved. And, you know, as we know, Many air charter flights. There's a charter broker somewhere in the mix. There's lots of different structures, but a lot of times the, the charter broker will collect and remit the FET for a specific flight than another operator. 135 operators providing, and there can be questions down the line on audits and things like that as to you know has this FET been paid? What records are there? And The IRS did sort of open the door to look at that, but when they came out with the final rule, they basically said that that's a a larger issue that's going to require additional resources and and kind of a separate rulemaking effort. So we, along with NATA, are going to go back to the IRS and encourage them to to either work with us on some informal guidance on that, that topic if they're willing, or actually launch another rulemaking effort on this idea of responsibility for collecting and remitting FET. And while it's not directly related to what John and I are talking about, it is, I think, kind of like the next big excise tax issue that's out there for the industry. So while this is a key
0: accomplishment, John, it sounds like NBAA's work on these issues is far from over.
2: Well, that's right. The IRS did, in the preamble to the regulations, invite additional comments on a couple of issues. So we'll certainly follow up on those. One thing they identified as a separate project is what Scott was describing, the problem of charter brokers not having clear guidance from the IRS, and, and then this odd problem that air carriers are ultimately responsible for unpaid tax, even though a charter broker may have sold the flight to the customer and the air carrier wasn't even involved in the transaction. So. Uh, We do want to follow up on IRS's, I guess, invitation or or pointing out that this is a separate project that they uh, have sympathy with the taxpayer's problems. One other thing they ask for comments on is the concept of an agent. And this relates to a subject that we pressed for relief on and we really didn't get it. The concern is that if you have a related party pay for the flight, that is a party related to the owner of the aircraft, well then the owner didn't pay for the flight and the exception doesn't apply. And we we said we're going to have just all sorts of situations and distinctions that are very complicated, IRS, why don't you just let payments by related parties count as payments on behalf of the owner, either as the owner's agent or pursuant to a constructive lease or, or, or just administratively allow the payments by related parties so we don't have a lot of ridiculous distinctions to have to make, and, and the IRS just refused to agree to that, uh, but they did open the door to further comments on what it means to be an agent and I think we'd probably press for some relief on the constructive lease issue again. So that's one additional item I think we need to follow up on.
0: To keep track of the latest developments in this process, and to learn more about this and other federal and state taxation policies affecting the ownership, use, and operation of business aircraft, visit nbaa.org taxes. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts in the App Store, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including by asking Alexa or another connected device, or download them from NBAA.org. I'm Rob Finfrock. Thanks for listening, and join us next week for another episode of Flight Plan.